Hi, everyone. It's Rohan Sananti, and welcome to the Wharton Digital Health Podcast. It's a podcast where MBAs can connect with the alumni community about the latest trends, company initiatives, and jobs available in the payer provider, digital health, and investing spaces. Today, we are lucky to have Mamta Patel. Hello, Mamta. Hi, thanks for having me. All right. Mamta is a 2014 grad of Wharton. She currently leads the operational excellence team at Flatiron, a company that almost needs no introduction. Um, a quick one sentence on it is that it's a developer of a database platform designed to organize the oncology information, really, of the world right now in the U.S., and to make it useful for patients, physicians, life sciences, and researchers. Hi again, Mamta. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Great. Thank you for having me. All right. Let's jump right in. Can you give us a brief summary of your career path kind of before and after Wharton and then how you got to Flatiron? Absolutely. Um, so for me, coming out of undergrad, I actually always wanted to focus in healthcare. So right off the bat, I went and joined a healthcare consulting firm. Um, actually called Stockamp, which was a very small private uh, company that was acquired by Huron Consulting Group. And I spent a couple of years just working with different hospital systems, focused on a mix of system implementation, process redesign work, and then a lot of change management work to really help hospitals um, come off of paper onto technology. It was kind of the, the key point in time when that was happening across the industry. Um, and coming out of that job, I was really looking forward to going to Wharton and going to the healthcare management program where um, I wanted to reflect on what I enjoyed about my consulting experience, but also find an opportunity to do something new within the industry. Um, so while I was at Wharton, I was grateful to have the two years to really reflect back, as well as leverage my internship to figure out what I wanted to do next. Um, so one of the things that really stood out to me about consulting is that I really enjoyed working with technology. I really enjoyed introducing and helping to manage positive change within an environment like a hospital system. But what I felt I was missing was not being as close to the technology and having an opportunity to impact it. Um, and then I also didn't have the opportunity to really innovate at a broad scale. Uh, it felt like it would take forever if I tried to go hospital to hospital to have impact. So I really wanted to think about uh, entering the startup industry and the tech industry and looking for the right opportunity to have a broad scale impact, which Flatiron really allows um, and is an important piece of why I came to Flatiron coming out of school. One thing that I did, though, as a test before uh, leaving Wharton was really thinking about how to shape my internship. Um, and I actually went and worked with Simply, which is a payments, healthcare payments startup that uh, is based out of Palo Alto. And it was a good opportunity for me to test being in a much more ambiguous startup-y environment, which is quite different from being in a very structured consulting environment. Yeah. And then also yeah. test um, whether I wanted to switch from an operations focus, which is the type of consulting that I did, into something else. So I actually tested working in a, in a B2B marketing. Coming out of that, it was actually really nice. I, I validated that I really do enjoy and thrive in that ambiguous environment where I have the opportunity to figure out what's the right next step, where should I focus my time on today, how does that change tomorrow, in a month, in a quarter, in a year. Um, but I did find that I also am not a marketer, <laughs> yeah. and I really wanted to go back to my roots in operations. So coming out of business school, what I really focused in on was how can I find the right opportunity 
that has an operations type of role where I can bring the skill set that I have, but apply it in a very different way than what I was doing before business school. Um, I was actually quite picky, so I had made a, a short list of companies that I was really interested in and very passionate about and had a mission that I believed in and, and had kind of that impact in, in innovation that I thought was much more broader scale than what I was doing before. And that's how I found Flatiron and actually followed Flatiron the whole time that I was at Wharton. And I was lucky enough that I believe Flatiron Series B was right the month that I graduated from Wharton. Uh, and I was actually able to find at that time a specific operations role that was the right blend and mix of me being able to bring that process management, client management, um, delivery side of things, but in an environment that I just didn't have as much context for. So I also had the opportunity to learn. Like I'd never worked in oncology. Um, I was actually working directly with some of our life sciences partners and had never had exposure to life sciences before. It was really a good mix. Um, for me to learn and grow, but also for me to be able to contribute directly. That's excellent. I think we oh, could. Do, I think we could do an entire podcast just on the thoughtful process that you took uh, to pick your job. I mean, a lot of us, <laughs> a lot of us, kind of stumble upon different opportunities. It sounds like you really took the time to think it through, um, and I really applaud that. Uh, sorry to cut you off there, but I, I I love hearing this evolution of thought that you've had. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and I, I will say it's a very different path than others probably have taken, but I think for me, it was important for me to find some place that I could stay for a long time. And here I am four years later, I'm actually in a very different role from what I was doing when I started at Flatiron. I now lead our operational excellence team. Um, and it's just been an exciting transition to be able to continue to grow and, and find a place that I could do that without having to, to move to another uh, company. Love hearing that. Well, we're going to we're going to jump into the industry now. Um, everyone, Flatiron is one of the companies, one of the few digital health uh, companies out there that needs almost no introduction. But if you could frame for us kind of the industry a little bit, give us a brief overview uh, of the company, just because everyone sort of knows Flatiron just in the sense, OK, you're organizing oncology data. But what does that mean and how is it done and, and, and why does it need to exist? All right. So if you could just walk us through the industry a little bit and kind of where we're at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so at Flatiron, we truly believe that you can learn from the experience of every cancer patient. And by doing that, that that is the key to being able to improve both the quality of care and then also to accelerate research. So there are a lot of different aspects within the industry that there is opportunity for innovation. And we think that by utilizing technology and being really thoughtful about how you do it, um, you can actually have that broad scale impact across different aspects. Um, so at a very high level, when we look at Flatiron and where we fit within the industry, we're a technology and services company. We operate, as I mentioned, exclusively within oncology. And our goal here is to build the infrastructure for both cancer care and research collaboration. And we think those things come hand in hand. So within community oncology, there's community oncology and academic oncology. Um, for community oncology, we provide a, an electronic health record system, practice management software, and have over 265 cancer clinics within the United States that are leveraging our technology. We can then actually partner that and combine with our proprietary technology-enabled extraction process um, 
to then deliver large de-identified data sets that allow us to generate insights to answers of a very broad range of research questions. So in these two different areas, we're really working in parallel to allow us to improve that quality of care as well as accelerate research. Got it, got it. And who are the other players, just so we get a sense of the industry? Um, like, did this exist, you know, before Flatiron came around? And how were we organizing oncology data before this? Um, just so people can get a sense of how big the problem was. It's a great question. So the way that I think about it is, if you look at our technology side and what we offer from an electronic health record system, for example, there are a few other players within the market. So McKesson has a product. Um, Varian, and then I believe Mosaic are the other electronic medical record systems that are out there for oncology. But then if I look at the research side and the data, like the data compilation and the ability to really think about research, we're looking at very different players within the market. So like IMS, for example, might be a player within that market. Um, it's actually very different dependent on the service. I'm not sure that I've seen another company out there that's doing all of the same things that Flatiron is doing. Um, and I think that's what's novel and that's what's new about what we're doing here at Flatiron. Well, definitely. And we, you know, you're not the only one that thinks so. Roche thinks so too. <laughs> and uh, for, for our listeners, uh, most people have heard about this already, but uh, Roche has purchased Flatiron or, or is in the process of doing so. Uh, it's public information and really exciting, really a, a real stalwart win for the digital health industry just to show that um, data can be organized in a meaningful way. And then that data can be used um, for a lot of different verticals for a lot of different purposes. Um, and so other companies are willing to pay north of a billion dollars to, to, to get that data and to get, wring the use out of it. So um, it's fantastic to see the evolution of that. One stat we've seen is that only about 4% of cancer patients ever enter clinical, clinical trials. Um, so we, it's a, roughly a 96% white space out there to get more data. Uh, what do you think are some of the biggest obstacles to accessing this population? Because um, we see this four and 96 step, but is it really possible to get to that 96 and it's flat iron trying to? Yeah. So when we're looking at that three to 4% of adult cancer patients who are participating in a clinical trial, we really believe that the only reason that that number is so small is because, well, it can, the key reason is because the matching process for patients to trials is very time consuming and very expensive. So because of this, it's just not easy to find potentially life-saving clinical trials. And that in turn means that research efforts to better understand those therapies um, and the results can take many years. Our goal here in this particular part of the space is to really help shorten that timeline. If we're able to shorten the timeline, we can accelerate the rate at which patients and providers are able to find available trials and ultimately also make new therapies available much quicker. Um, and similar to what I said earlier, we really do think that technology is the key to unlocking that data and that information that we need from disparate data sources. And if we're able to bring things together in a way that allows patients to be able to find these trials, um, we do think that there's going to be much better access to care and better care as quickly as possible and no matter where you live. Um, one of the things that we focus a lot on, and I had mentioned we have uh, about 265 clinics, is community oncology. And community oncology today doesn't have as much access to trials as academic medical centers do. 
So what we really want to do is make sure that we're actually expanding the opportunity across the entire United States and more, more broadly in the long term. Um, so that it doesn't really matter where you live and where you're based, you actually have the ability to access one of these trials. Is Flatiron also playing a matching role? So in the sense that um, it knows the patient so well, it might also know which trials are going on. So is it, is it playing a role in pushing patients towards certain trials? So ultimately in the long term, we think that technology can allow providers to screen patients for these open clinical trials and help them enroll. We are a technology provider for a lot of these community oncologists, and we think that there's a role that we can play there over time. Um, so as we do think about our clinical research offerings, we anticipate that the offering can be much more broad, leveraging data, operational integrations, we really do think there's an opportunity to drive that efficiency within clinical research and bring the right parties together at the right points in time um, to make these trials more available. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, I know um, a lot of our listeners are always interested in, in the person, and I am too. And you're, you have a cool role at one of the hottest companies out there. So we want to dive in and talk about your role at Flatiron. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, I know you've had several, so you can walk us through maybe the evolution, but we'd love to focus on your current role today, what your team does, um, and, and what kind of problems you're tackling. So if you kind of can maybe lead us through your, your entry into Flatiron up till today, and then we can go from there. All right. Um, so when I first came to Flatiron, I joined a team where we were looking at what types of products where functionality can be offered to our provider partners through the technology that we have within clinics that also provided value to our life sciences partners and could be sponsored by them. So really thinking about the intersection of how information is, is exchanged between life sciences and providers. So this could be things like patient education materials on therapies, um, patient assistance programs, that sort of thing. Uh, so my role here was working with the team to pilot a few different things and understand where there was good engagement across both sets of stakeholders to understand what might scale well and what might provide the most value. I was looking for new opportunities, and it was at a point where the company had scaled up quite a bit. We've just grown pretty significantly in the last four years that I've been here, where we were finding that the way that our teams work together wasn't as efficient as it could be and okay. we were we were just scaling so fast that we needed a team to really think about how do we redefine the way that we work how do we redesign our processes to work with all of these new teams that have sprung up that we wow. didn't used to have and and really focus in on those pain points and that was the genesis of starting an operational excellence team which is truly supporting all of the teams within Flatiron that help to build and deploy this technology and the services that we offer to our community oncology providers. Wow. Okay. So I kind of think of you as um, an internal kind of SWAT team where you have Flatiron does so many different things and has so many teams that there needs to be a team to kind of run that operationally and make sure the coordination is there, the going to market together is there, the backend infrastructure is there. Sounds like you've got your hands in a lot of different pots. Is that right? That is correct. Um, the way I, I always try to describe us is as an internal consulting team, effectively. And I think our key area of focus is really on process improvement, redesign, and change management, because 
anytime you change the way someone works, um, no one really likes change in their day to day. So it's, it's, it's really important for us to focus on how we manage that and think about um, the, the output and the efficiencies that can be gained if we work together in a different way. Yeah. Could you give us an example of maybe a current project or initiative? Uh, you know, I know it's, I know it's, we don't want to get into the secret sauce here, but just something so we understand maybe what's the current challenge that you're tackling that your team's working on. So we know like how a company like Flatiron thinks about change and then tackling that change. Yeah. Um, so one key area of focus that actually hits on um, a couple different projects that we're working on has to do with communication and how we share information internally. So if I think back to when I started at Flatiron, when I was working on the patient assistance product, I had a product manager, uh, an engineering lead, um, and then the, the two or three people that I was working with on my team who needed to be really involved and really informed throughout the process because we were pretty small um, and we were able to just talk to each other to, to know what was going on. Uh, fast forward four years, we now have, I want to say, 10 to 15 product managers across the business, um, a ton of engineers, of course, as a technology company. We have all these customer-facing teams that didn't exist when I first started. Just the, the way that you share information changes so dramatically when you grow to be bigger, and the information that a account manager who, who talks to a practice every day versus a... Uh, you know, a clinical oncologist to support certain services that we offer to our customers um, to help them with their workflows. Um, there's just kind of a difference in the level of depth that you need and how you access content. So in a general theme standpoint, we are actually looking a lot at how different information is communicated. So one example of this is um, we're in the midst of our annual strategic planning process. And one of the things we really want to be thoughtful about is how are we defining key performance indicators that help us measure the success of different aspects of our strategy and make sure that we can you know, manage that progress? But if you think about KPIs at a company level versus, versus a team level, we can get really deep and we can end up with a ton of different metrics that we're looking at that could mean different things to different people. So we're actually looking at how we can ladder down um, you know, 10 metrics that are top level that everyone needs to understand and then how um, a team focused on one aspect of the business needs to build in. Like our sales team, for example, should have more detailed sales metrics associated with uh, the overall strategy versus our customer success team who's working with all of our active customers will have very different set of metrics that they're looking at in more detail. Uh, so thinking about the infrastructure we put in place to help us continue to stay aligned and working together for our overall strategy and our overall goals. Yeah. Wow. So for our listeners out there, I, I think this is how uh, you don't just build a company that leads an industry, you sustain it. This is one of the ways, because what it sounds, what I'm hearing is you, you strive for excellence and then you have a team that constantly makes sure you're staying excellent, which is pretty incredible. And I think hard to do because you're setting your own benchmarks. There is not right. another flat iron out there. Um, there's not another company with that much uh, oncology data, rolling up that many oncology EMRs. There's just not another one out there doing it so well and, and across so many different community centers. So I think that's really cool to hear. What uh, what do you think um, are some of the ways that you make decisions, if I can put that put it in that framework? So in business school, everything is put to us in such a packaged way. Um, but mm -hmm. my, you know, we're given all the info 
perfectly in the case and you have to solve it. And that's really not how it is in real life. And especially for you, you you're leading operational excellence. It's messy. Um, you have to deal with people and emotions and it's messy. So I just want to try to understand, could you give us a sense of like, when do you pull the trigger on a decision? Do you like, so when you're thinking about making a change in the company or for a particular team, do you test it out first and see how that goes and measure certain things and go for it? Or do you just go for it and see how it goes? Or like, can you give us a sense of how you, what's the timeline of change? Because it's, it's really difficult to make these kind of choices, I think. Yeah. Um, so I would say this first off, Flatiron is very open to change of anywhere that I have been. We actually operate in a very iterative type of culture. So people are used to trying new things and are very willing um, to pilot something. And because of that, the way that we look at managing change, introducing change, making decisions about it is really trying to understand how the different teams work and what they have an appetite for. And because that's so ingrained in our culture, I actually think it makes the job easier for my team um, to be able to help teams make these changes. So for us, we think there are a couple components that are very important. One, just understanding all the different perspectives of the different team members who might be impacted by a process before before deciding what you're going to do. Because a lot of times if you talk to a team member on one team, but you don't talk to someone on another team, you're just getting a very siloed point of view, not because that person has any ill intent, but more because they're thinking about how that process impacts their day to day. And then you kind of, once you collect all of the different inputs, a lot of these different team members are also providing suggestions and what they think could be valuable or what um, they're looking to gain out of making a change. So if it's a communication change, it might be the customer success team saying, I really just need a synthesis or like a short way to understand what changes we might um, be seeing or what new products might be coming down the pipeline so I can communicate more effectively with my customers. Um, and if I just had three bullets on that once a month, that would be everything that I need. And yeah. just being able to, to pass that information back to another team and design the process to allow for that is really valuable. But if you don't actually take the step back to collect that, a lot of times you can rush to make make a change that doesn't actually provide the value to all the different uh, folks involved. Um, and then I think piloting is always important because it also allows you to learn um, from the process and learn where there are gaps that we just didn't anticipate. It's very hard to anticipate all of the different perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then it also, because we're an iterative culture, gives you that next step of figuring out how do we then iterate and make more changes so that we can be more successful and this can be more efficient and everyone can have the things that they need to be successful in their role. Yeah. Wow. I love hearing that. I mean, it's not just jargon coming from you. It's uh, it's real because you are at the leading company in this industry. So what, what you're doing is clearly paying off. Um, it would be re I would be remiss if I didn't ask about the acquisition. Just uh, whatever you can kind of touch on as far as maybe what's changed, what's not, or what's exciting now, um, because uh, it, it's, it's just exciting for the industry, of course. But on top of that, Flatiron has uh, a really strong reputation of having like a strong moral and ethical code as a company. That's just the reputation I think it has in the industry. And so I don't think the Roche acquisition clouds that reputation at all. I think that there can be firewalls between the companies and I um, I strongly believe Flatiron can hold itself to that standard. And I believe the industry does too. That's just my gut. But can you give us a sense of, you know, operational excellence? You're, I mean, you are going to be a real centerpiece of this company moving forward. And there's going to be a lot of pressure on you to deliver. So 
just give us a sense of maybe how things have changed a little bit or if they haven't and, and what you see coming down the pipe post-acquisition. Yeah. Um, so I will say this, just being a part of the acquisition itself has just been really exciting. Um, I think Roche has been a wonderful partner for us. When I actually look at the way that we're structured, they told us that we would be an independent subsidiary, and we have very truly been an independent subsidiary. I actually look at my day-to-day, and it has not changed um, in any way, shape, or form, and I think that that is the right uh, approach, and it has been really nice to see that play out over the months following the acquisition. Um, I think the biggest thing you could say has changed is the fact that we now have access to more resourcing for our product lines. Uh, for new capabilities, um, the ability to enter new markets. There's just more that we can do that already was in our roadmap. We just now can do it faster than we were able to do uh, without Roche. Um, And the really interesting thing when you look at the rest of the market and you think about how, um, how we are operating independently, the best validation we had is just a few weeks post acquisition, we were able to announce a huge partnership with Bristol Myers Squibb who is one of Roche's competitors. And we truly believe that the only way we can achieve our overall mission with research collaboration and all of the things that we talked about earlier today is to be able to work with everyone across the industry. We really wouldn't have it any other way. Um, And it's really been a great validation to actually see all of this play out and to be able to continue to partner with other folks within the industry uh, post acquisition. Wow. Yeah, I think uh, partnering with Bristol Myers, I mean, that just shows you that the independence is there. Because um, otherwise, a partnership like that would get shut down somewhere else uh, post-acquisition. But clearly, is willing to let you flex flex your muscles. And I love to hear that. Um, so we're going to transition now to talk about hiring. Um, folks are always interested in getting to our guests and getting to their companies. Um, and Flatiron has long been, I mean, you found you, you found the rocket ship at Series B, which was um, very insightful of you, but folks are still interested in knocking on the door of Flatiron, not just current students, but alumni, I think, who have listened to the, to the podcast. Can you give us a sense of just the MBA, whether there's an MBA environment at all? Um, a lot of the tech companies and digital health companies, they don't have a proper pipeline, meaning uh, they don't go out there exclusively looking for MBAs, and that's fine. Um, we, we've heard that before, and we know that. But could you give us a sense of from inside the company, you have an MBA, you know, what's it like, and is it kind of MBA friendly, and then transition us into maybe talking about hiring? Sure. Um, so Flatiron is a very MBA friendly place. I'm here, and there, there are many MBAs within Flatiron who have been okay. working in a variety of roles across the business. Um, As you mentioned, similar to other companies, we don't have a formal hiring program for MBAs. But that being said, what we really look for is finding folks who have the right skills for a particular role and are able to find kind of that balance between bringing something from a prior experience, but then also ensuring that we're offering opportunities for folks to grow and learn in a new way. Um, So we are always open to having MBAs apply for different roles. And I see them across a set of roles within the company. Um, but just transparently, we don't have that formal uh, hiring process in place. Yeah. And Mumta, if someone was going to come to try to work on your team, what kind of skills are you looking for? Just because, you know, in a, in a certain way, I mean, you're leading operational excellence, internal consulting, if you will. And there's obviously a strategy component um, at a really large digital health company. So 
we could, I want to hear from you, not just what you would hire for, but that's a good proxy for what an internal consulting, internal strategy, internal ops role at another digital health company might be like. So people can maybe abstract some of those skills. So you just give us a sense of maybe what you would look for uh, right out of the gate. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the biggest things, and I had mentioned before that iteration is important to us, and we actually see that in every role within the business. So we're really looking for entrepreneurial-minded folks who could take initiative or self-driven, who could identify the ability or the opportunities that we have to be better and then help us be better at those different areas. Um, I would also say we're an extremely collaborative environment. So taking a step back, if if I'm approaching one of my projects and thinking about how we're going to move something forward, almost every day, this week even, um, I've had a meeting where I have one person in the room who is a oncologist who's been practicing for over 20 years. There's a product manager who came from Google, an engineer who came from Amazon, a you know former consultant, someone who worked in a life sciences company. We're essentially working across all these different backgrounds and team members to come up with a solution together that we are collaborating on and pulling the different pieces of expertise that each person has to offer to develop something innovative and something that will allow us to move forward in a unique way that not one of those people would have come up with on their own. So we really, really rely on people to come in who want to collaborate, who want to teach, and who want to share their different expertise areas and then learn from each other to build solutions that really can help set us apart as we continue forward. Yeah, no, that's excellent. I love hearing that. I think the only thing that I uh, want to highlight is you said expertise, and that means that we have to develop some. <laughs> so as MBA, we, we stay so high level, we don't want to pick an industry, at least this podcast listeners here are picked healthcare, but even within healthcare, it's so broad. I think going deep in one or two specific areas um, is always useful rather than staying up at a high level where MBAs we usually do, especially in school. Um, so I think that's that's great to hear. Uh, well, thanks so much for joining the podcast. We always like to give our uh, guests a, kind of a moment to pass on any final thoughts and um, maybe advice they have for MBAs or it could be ideas or people uh, they want to highlight in the industry. Uh, it's kind of an open mic chance for you to, to share that. So any final thoughts? Yeah, um, I know. I think thinking back to when I when I was in school for those two years, I think it's just a really good opportunity to take a step back and think about what you're looking for and what you want. Um, I actually mentioned at the beginning, I was pretty picky in what I was looking for in my own process, but I think it's because I had the time to think about that. Um, so I just highly recommend taking some time, um, you know, leveraging the alumni community, looking at things like if you want to be in healthcare technology, keeping a pulse on who's getting funded, what companies are out there, um, who is hiring at any point in time, following companies over the entire time that you're in school can pay off. <laughs> yeah. um, and then I also think just like using that internship time to really test something new. It's, it's very rare that you have an opportunity to take a step back, do something and not have to, to continue doing that thing for a longer period of time. Um, I think really just taking that moment and really thinking about what you want is important. Could I ask, did you get your flat iron offer towards the end of your second year? No. So I actually, I was picky enough that I didn't even look. I didn't even look for jobs until after I graduated because 
and you'll find this with a lot of technology startups, people want to hire pretty immediately. So if they find someone that they want to be in a role, they want to hire you with, within the next two to three weeks and have you start. Wow. Um, so it's actually quite difficult to find jobs while you're still in school and you can't commit to starting. So I waited until I graduated. I didn't actually start until November, uh, which is many months after, but for me, it was all about finding the right place that I could stay at for a long time. And four years later, I'm still here. So I'm, I'm glad I took an extra few months uh, back then to, to find this type of opportunity. That's fantastic. And uh, your propensity for risk is uh, pretty incredible. I'm happy that you didn't succumb to the sort of hamster wheel of trying to find a job as soon as possible. And you clearly were very thoughtful um, in your approach. And look, it definitely paid off. So to our listeners, I mean, I think if you're trying to if you're trying to work for a month, uh, the number one word I would use is be thoughtful about your job search because it sounds like <laughs> that's the way to uh, get in front of her and get a conversation. Thank you so much, Mamta. Really appreciate uh, the insights today and the insights about Flatiron. Um, sounds like you'll probably be hearing from some Wharton folks in the future looking to get in at, at one of the hottest digital health companies out there. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much.